Hey, you're listening to TBB Talks, the podcast hosted by the British Blacklist, where we bring you conversations with creative black folk from the UK and wider diaspora. We'll be talking to up and comings, headline popping, and the legends across screen, stage, literature, and sound. And we hope to shed some insight into their lives, the careers they chose, how they stay motivated, and more importantly, how they keep sane being black in the arts and entertainment world. Okay, so, hi, I'm Hannah Sherry Smith from the British Blacklist, and today I'm joined by Lucian Masmati. Thank you. Hello, 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 hello. So, Lucian, over the course of your career, you've played some iconic roles. The first time I saw you act was in um, Iqbal Khan's production of Othello, which you were the first black actor ever to play the role of Iago, which is amazing. But other iconic roles include Antonio Salieri in the National Theatre's Amadeus, Salador San in Game of Thrones, Ed Domani in Gangs of London. (laughs) Even with such an iconic catalogue, is there a particular role that stands out to you as having had the biggest impact on your career? Oh, wow. Well, I think they've all had a big impact. Perhaps I would say the reach of Game of Thrones has been the one that has, that has surprised me and stunned me the most. To be recognized in the weirdest places and in the <laughs> strangest situations, but, you know, um, it's got such a broad fan base. So I suppose that just in terms of the spread of that, uh, that, is, that is quite something. And again, we create these things in a certain kind of isolation. And you never really fully know how far things will reach, how far things will go. Mm. So Gangs of London, I think that, uh, especially now that it has all come out during lockdown, the effect has been magnified anyway. <laughs> and so it's very strange, again, to just get messages from such a wide uh, spread of people. And yeah, it's all, all of them. So like the, the reach of the, the roles that you play, I guess in a career aspect, that's quite important for moving things ahead is that something that's like impacts the roles that you choose to play as well well no not not necessarily I think you know you take you know whatever is on offer uh, and it's up to you whether you, you you choose it or not but I suppose I at this moment I have a certain degree in in the luxury of choice um there are roles I don't have to take I'm not in a thankfully touch wood thank god the ancestors and the spirits but after you know, after all the years of the graft and the working, I don't have to take the next job if I don't have to. You know, this thing about choosing what roles to take. I've noticed in previous interviews you've talked about how growing up in Zimbabwe, in a situation where you know everybody is black, has kind of made you feel less limited as a black mm-hmm. actor in the roles yeah. that you feel you can play. Do you have any advice for young black actors in Britain about how to pick the roles that you agree to play in? Ah, that's an interesting one. Okay. I will never forget a comment made by my agent, my dear agent and friend Leslie Duff, many years ago, mm-hmm. when the opportunity came up for me to run Theatre Kaodzi, Theatre Company, uh, Africans in British Theatre. At the time, as an actor, I was quote unquote climbing the ladder, as it were, but I also had a family. I was, you know, we we're all trying to make ends meet, we we're all trying to do things. And not only was it an offer of a regular paycheck, but it was also in the industry that I love. It was a job that I was well capable of doing. It's in many ways, it was the perfect quote unquote other job to do. And when I sat down with my agent to ask to have the serious conversation about whether I should take it or not, because of course I'm greedy. I don't want to cut off any other 
you know, I want I wanted to do it all. Yeah. She said to me, look, when it comes down to it, I don't have your bills to pay. I can't answer those questions. That's got to be your choice. She said, I knew that you'd get the job anyway, because I believe in you. I mean, she was a lot more swearing around it, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Only friends and loved ones can do. But she said, look, it's, I admire the, the choice. The decision is yours. It's your, I don't have your bills to pay. And so the first thing that I would say to, to fellow actors coming up is, look, you don't get better if you don't work, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And not everybody walks into Hamlet or Salieri or Iago. That's just not what happens. Mm-hmm. Okay. And sometimes you do have to be the third spear carrier on the left. Or you do have to have those two lines in an epic. That's the name of the game. That's how you get better. So, you know, I can tell you that I've learned a hell of a lot more being the third spear carrier on the left <laughs> than I have in some ways in playing Iago or Salieri because you get to sit and watch and learn yeah. and grow. So I would say it's a question of balance. If your end game is the Netflix special, forget it. That is not a career aspiration. You are an actor. You must act. You must do as much as possible to learn your craft, to grow your craft. And also, yes, you have bills to pay. Not everybody can be Hamlet off the bat, and not everybody will be. There's no slight on you. There's no slight on your ability. That is the name of the game. So, you know, never turn down an opportunity to practice your craft. And I guess that also points to this idea that, I mean, like this idea that you can't, at the beginning of your career, just continue acting to be in the Netflix special. This idea that there is a joy in the craft itself. I mean, how do you sustain that love as an actor, as a writer, as a director? How do you keep going and wanting to create more? That's what you're here to do. You know, I remember another fantastic director that I've had the opportunity to work with, Dominic Cook. I've worked with Dominic a number of times. And and Mm -hmm. there have been a couple of times when Dominic wanted me in plays and I just said, no, I don't want to. I don't think the part is big enough. I don't think the role, you know, for all sorts of reasons. And again, another nugget of wonderful advice that I got from him was that this, the job you're doing right now, that's the job. This is your career. You being in this particular play right here, right now, that is your job. It's not a stepping stone. That's it. Are you telling me that you are going to be less happy doing this job here now and that you'll be more happy because you're in a Netflix special as the lead? Because very often, as it turns out, sometimes that Netflix special is going to make you an incredibly unhappy and uncomfortable. Not because there's anything wrong with it, but because, you know, it's a big load. It's a big burden. (laughs) Big expectation. There's a lot of pressure, you know, and it's on you. It's all on you. But I suppose it's, if you don't love standing on a trestle table on top of beer crates, performing for seven people in a church hall somewhere, as much as you do standing on the Olivier Theatre stage in front of however many thousands beamed around the world, then you don't really love it. And you should probably do something else because that's the gig. So you mentioned that you served as artistic director of Theatre Fawadzee. As well as that, you've written and directed your own plays. I was wondering whether you found that having written and directed, that that helped you as an actor in any way? Yes, in many ways actually. Certainly in terms of having been an actor, every discipline and every other sort of branch of the profession that I have learned has essentially been about facilitating the thing that I love the most, which is performing. 
And so I have been able to attack those other professions or those other hats, as it were, with curiosity and interest mm -hmm. in the sense to see how they serve the main thing. For instance, having being an actor and directing other actors, I know all the tricks and the insecurities and the nonsense that we as actors come up with when we're uncomfortable with something, when we're, when we're not sure about something. I know all of the tricks. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, that sounds a bit <laughs> I, know a fair, I know a fair few of them. I can see them, put it that way. I can see when I'm on the other side of the table, I can go, ah, I know, I know what's going through your mind right now. And yes, in those moments, it is useful to be able to stand up and go and stand next to your cast member and go, okay, show me, yeah. show me what the problem is. But again, it's also knowing when not to play that card, knowing that, uh, okay, now just be quiet. Let them figure it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe 25 steps ahead because you've spent months and months and months preparing this or years and years, you know, it backwards and forwards, you know, they're coming to this journey fresh and in their own way. And they're always going to know something more than you. There's always a room for surprise. So I guess the most refreshing aspect of having all the hats is park your ego. No one cares. <laughs> <laughs> so you were kind of talking about that in the way that writing and directing has helped you more as an actor. But do you think you will be doing a return to any writing or directing in the future? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's oh, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... The journey is not done at all, you know. Um, and in many ways, I had the opportunity to speak to a group of wonderful folk of all ages, ranges, shapes, and sizes, and persuasions. And I said, look, look, here I am at the age of 44. I'm proudly 44. I remember when I was 23. And I thought, oh my God, if I don't achieve X, Y, and Z by the time I'm 26, I'm a failure. <laughs> I don't do this by the time, if I'm not a multi-millionaire superstar entertainer by the time I'm 35, I'm a, I'm a failure. I mean, I might as well just, no, 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 no. Your journey in life finishes when you're in a box in the ground. That's when it stops, mm -hmm. not before. I look back now and yes, I cringe and I laugh at myself in some ways because yeah, of course I was 23. We've all been there um, one way or the other. Some are still there. Amen to you, more power to your elbow if that's where you are. But I look back and I think, you know what? I was pretty good as an actor when I was 23. I'm a hell of a lot better now than I'm 44. And I'm going to be much better when I'm 66, 67. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just going to know more, you know? Yeah. So it's battling against the tyranny of the ticking clock is something that we all, <laughs> that we all face. But... I feel now, at this age, right here, right now, now I'm like, oh, great, yes. Come on then. All right, <laughs> now, now I know what I'm doing. Come on, let's do, let's do more. So we grow as people. We grow as, as artists. A friend of mine said to me that, you know, actually you, you, you can put the brakes on your own life if you allow yourself to stop growing. If you go, you know what, I've got this, I've got that. I've got my car, my house, my, my wife, my three kids, my fat bank balance or not. I'm just, that's it, done. I'm done. No, you're not done. You're not done. <laughs> Life has only just begun. So it's, yeah, keep going is what I say. Okay, so let's talk about talking heads. Um, mm. 
coming out. Uh, so yeah. you're saying Wilfred Patterson in the monologue playing sandwiches. Tell yeah. us a bit about Wilfred. Well, what can I say about Wilfred? He is, uh, <laughs> he's had an interesting life. Mm. He's had a very interesting life. I, I enjoyed getting to know him. I was shocked by what I discovered. I was horrified and, and in some cases disgusted by what I discovered. But then there was a beautiful human push and pull in me because I got to know the person. And I think if we have got it right, then I believe the audience will go on that journey as well of being pushed and pulled because, you know, he is on the surface a really nice man. Mm -hmm. He's a, you know, kind of avuncular, smart. But then you discover, as you know, as the layers are peeled back, you discover he's, he's done some pretty horrendous things in his life. But because of who he is, I believe, we, for a, for a, for a moment, put ourselves in his situation. Not to justify or to condone, but to kind of go, wow, okay. This uh, brother man's got some serious problems. He has done some despicable things, which he knows he has done. But somewhere within that, there is a hint that equally despicable things have happened to him in his life. But it's, again, it's for the audience to decide. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really a testament to Alan Bennett's writing as well, because a lot of the monologues in Talking Heads kind of invite you to empathise with the yes. perpetrator as opposed yes. to the victim. Exactly. I mean, you have spoken a bit about what it's like as an actor performing that, yeah. but is there any like particular process that you had to go through with Jeremy Heron to... With all roles and with all stories, you have to know when to park the anthropology and the forensic psychology mm -hmm. and it is useful. Because what happens is that if you start overlaying too much research, it then becomes a documentary piece and you mm -hmm. lose a, a human being. And that part of what we do as performers and storytellers is that we, we are trying to bring to life complexities without necessarily offering answers. And we can't do that if we know all the answers already. And sometimes that's what research can, too much research can do. So we were, uh, we were very careful to, to build a picture of who this person is, where does, you know, who is his wife? Where has he lived? You know, what are the jobs that he has done? Let's paint that picture first. And then, of course, there were specific bits of, of research around uh, sexual offenders, especially uh, uh, pedophiles. And it wasn't so much, it's, it's, it's to pull away from the act itself. I think that's the thing. The act itself, in and of itself, is a horrible, terrifying thing. But it was important for us to try and understand the motivations because actually they aren't sexual that's the thing that is really confusing and of course i'm not an expert i'm a, i am a storyteller and i'm looking at it from a specific point of view but what i found interesting within the, the research was that it is not that the primary driver in, in some cases is not sexual at all there's something else and it was trying to find what is it that, that has happened that makes someone do that? What is it that motivates someone to do that? Because the other thing is, <laughs> when we first meet him, he's incredibly charismatic, you know, and he says, which is quite kind of scary, you know, I did listen 
to the kids. I listened to them. I treated them like human beings. It's horrifying. But then within his own moral universe, he hasn't done anything wrong, even though he knows he's done something wrong. But he's like, no, well, actually, no, I was actually a good person. <laughs> Up until a certain point, I was actually really good and careful and loving and considerate. You know, um, and I, so I think for, for me, it was to, to if, you, if you dwell too much on the act itself, you can never find the person. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, is, again, is kind of the point of these monologues that yes. they're very uncomfortable issues, yeah. but he finds a way for you to see these people as humans. Yeah. So I'm exactly. very excited to, to see it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's been 20 years since the last series of Talking Heads, and mm -hmm. this monologue was originally performed by David Haig. That's um, correct. So, I think as a monologue, it's probably a lot more convenient to film during lockdown anyway, but do you yeah. think there is anything that's particularly relevant about these monologues 20 years later? Whew. Interesting. Well, I think certainly on one level, we can all relate to the isolation, uh, the sense of talking to talking to, to a confidant, letting it out, mm -hmm. uh, letting it out to a non-judgmental confidant. You know, we're all on Zoom, on Skype, on FaceTime, on, on WhatsApp. Um, suddenly there is a, it's like this never-ending confessional booth that does not judge or criticize, allows you to, to talk. I think we can certainly identify with that aspect. I think, and I suppose the sense of loneliness for a lot of people, of the disconnection uh, for a lot of people will be quite, uh, will be interesting. I think it's also, what I found interesting was that we, did, we, we talked very much about that, yes, in its original conception, you know, David Haig is a, a white man and a, and a fine actor. That's, you know, that's, that's beside the point. So for me, there was a, it was interesting to, to double down in a sense and go, okay, so if we're setting this in, uh, in the world in which it exists, not only is Wilfred a registered sex offender, but he's also, quote unquote, the only one in the village, as it were, the only black person mm. or, one, or one of the very few. You know, what does that do? him who has he been all his life if he has been in and around this community all his life you know what must that feel like that he is uh, at the same time it's not that that was not something it didn't change or necessarily alter the story but it did add to a sense of isolation for certainly for me getting to know him I'm going, wow that must have been you know quite something <laughs> you know um how do you negotiate anyway when you are quote unquote uh, you know, doubly indemnified, as it were, if that's the correct term. On a practical level, filming this during lockdown, how did that yeah. work? I saw in another interview they were talking about filming, uh, doing rehearsals via Zoom and then only having yeah. a day in the actual studio. Was yes. that the same for you? Yeah, pretty much. We rehearsed via Zoom, which was a lot of fun. In its, own, uh, in its own way. I mean, you know, because a monologue is very much self-contained, you can spend time with it, learning it, kicking it around and whatever. And I enjoyed that part of the process. I think Jeremy and I managed one socially distanced rehearsal in the flesh in a park, which was kind of weird. I kept thinking, you know, if anybody walks past now and happens to overhear what I'm saying, this is going to be so weird. 
<laughs> but no, I, I mean, I think the, the filming in a day excited me. Oh, really? Yeah, it was very exciting. It was also because it meant, okay, we do have to achieve it. We can do it. You know, you have to you know, cut out all the faff and nonsense and just get on with it, do it. And of course, you always, you, because you, you spent so much time with this particular piece and with this particular character by yourself, you then present it to effectively a bunch of strangers. So that I think <laughs> the hardest part of the shoot was maybe the first 20 minutes. And that was simply because you're just getting used to a new environment. You're in the costume for the first time and you are taking in the set and the atmos and you're just trying to put your character into that living, breathing world. And then there's the technical things of, okay, where's the camera? How do I interact with it? But within, I'd say, yeah, within the first half hour, which is normal anyway, we found our feet and the rest was, uh, was great fun. And I think I, I also enjoyed very much the, our crew interacting with the piece, being pushed and pulled by this character. Of course, socially distancing <laughs> got harder and harder as the day went on, just because we are back in you know, a working environment, everyone's, you know, the, the kind of the easy flow of, of conversation of this and that. And so that, that was kind of fun to police each other. Too close, no, 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 disinfectant. Oh, no, no, can't get too close, no. No, can't touch me, can't touch, take that fluff out of my hair, with my skin. It was also, I suppose, on a practical level, a lovely way to test run filming under uh, you know, these, these conditions. It's obviously a lot easier with a, a solo player. I think it would be a very different thing as uh, cast numbers grow. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, look, what we do is all about intimacy. That's the thing. You can't really manufacture intimacy as technically brilliant as the rest of our fellow creatives are. It's just intimacy, you know? You can't fake that, but we have to see. Yeah, with that in mind, I mean, you mm. seem to be speaking like this is kind of the future of filming for the foreseeable future. Do you Ooh. think, well, I mean, do you, do you think that there's anything that from having worked in lockdown mm. restrictions with all these weird social distancing things, do you think mm. that there is anything that you might take out of that or that the industry can learn from it and stuff that they make? Oh, wow. I think in a certain way, what it became all about the work mm -hmm. and the story and how best to tell it. I think I, I said in another interview that yes, it did feel like being back on tour in a van, going from venue to venue back in the day. You arrive in the morning, set up in the afternoon, perform in the evening, have a beer, take it all down and head off to the next. You know, there's no faff, there's no messing about, there's no ego, there's no, one saying, well, actually, I don't like the color of my costume. No, just get on with it. Get the, on with it, you know? I think it, is, it reminded us all why we love what we do, you know? That's so nice. Certainly for, you know, for me, anyway, that's what I got from it, is that I actually love this. Forget the career ladder, forget money, billing, fame, celebrity, whatever, all that nonsense. It was kind of just a, a wonderful back to basics. Like, I love this. I really love it. It, it fulfills me in a way that nothing else does you know i literally was after that day of filming for the two days after i was high i was just on a high you know i, I was back doing the thing that i love i was yeah. back being able to give you know being able to share to tell stories to communicate to to entertain because that's what i do and i love to do that and to you know to aid the cause that we're all we're all struggling under at this at this moment so yeah. i mean i think it's been really interesting to see 
how many people are tuning into the national theatre things as well because yeah. of how important people yeah. have realised that the arts yeah. are to, yeah. to help us through times like this. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've got your Amadeus coming up on <laughs> National Theatre Line as well, haven't we? So yes, there's lots of exciting stuff going on. I know that lockdown means where everything with creative projects is kind of up in the air, but with fans hoping for a second season of Gangs of London, can you tell <laughs> us about anything that might be coming up on the horizon? I can't reveal anything at all. No. <laughs> Ed Dumani does not, uh, has told me specifically to not say a word. And uh, you have to listen when Ed says, don't speak. So. Yeah, no, I definitely don't want to argue with Ed. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I think, I think uh, the, the response has been amazing. I think people have really, really, really taken to it and, and loved it. Yeah. And I think there's, uh, there, there's certainly uh, the will and the desire to, uh, to do more is definitely there. That is all I will say. Okay. Okay. You have to be patient. <laughs> so just to finish then, can you remind us briefly uh, where we can catch Talking Heads? So Talking Heads is on uh, BBC iPlayer, I believe, uh, from Wednesday the 24th of June. All the, the monologues will be available to Amazing. your delectation. So please enjoy. Thank you very much, Lucian. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>